Hello and welcome to Smoke and Burn. I'm Casey Gresseth, and today I'm joined by Ryan Holly, who you might know as Naples BG from Fox Distributing. How you doing, Ryan? Good. How about yourself, Casey? Not too bad, man. So it was funny when uh, when you came through BGU for the first time. When did when did you start with BG? I started, uh, I guess, about May of last year. So it's been uh, just a little under under a year at this point. Okay, so when you came through, I remember like the first day you were there. I just kept I kept looking at you like, God, that guy looks familiar. Like, where do I know him from? And then when you talked about your work history, it, it struck me that. Uh, Tony Goble and I had cold called you when you were a service manager at a dealership down there. That's right. You guys actually cold called me when I was a service manager for a Hyundai store in Fort Myers. And uh, I thought you looked familiar as well, but I was having a hard time putting my finger on it. And But then it, uh, it kind of all clicked together when you said that. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Small world. But uh can you kind of walk us through, uh, you've had a, a pretty long history in the automotive business. Can you kind of walk us through how you ended up with BG and your career before that? Yeah, absolutely. I actually, uh, I started in the automotive business uh, fresh out of high school at 18 years old. Um, you know, at that time, I really had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I saw an ad for a service advisor position and Seemed like the pay was pretty good, especially for an 18-year-old. I'm like, oh, shoot, I can do that. So I, I did. And um, this was when I was still – I had moved around a lot as uh, growing up, so I was living in the Boston area at the time. I uh, started working for a Chevy dealer up there. Um, ended up moving to Florida and worked for, worked for a Ford dealer and then actually ended up working for the Hyundai dealer that I became the manager at. Um, got a little uh, – did well, but you know, still a little bit aimless, so I – I joined the Air Force. I was an aircraft technician for about six years in the Air Force. Uh, got wow. out of that, um, came back to the industry that I knew that I could make some pretty decent money in, and um, came back to the same dealership that I left, uh, the Hyundai dealer, and uh, ended up getting quickly promoted to manager there. And I was uh, in charge of the Hyundai service department for for quite a few years, and um, ended up we, we we did not have BG in the door. Um, you know, at the time, and we had uh, gone through a couple different uh, competitors, um, and really didn't um, really didn't think much of that uh, of that program. I did, of course, knew, I knew that you know selling maintenance was important, but the actual details of it, I guess, I never really understood the significance of until there was actually a one day when it all kind of clicked together, and that actually ended up being a a demo that my current distributor um, performed for us that really blew me away. And uh, there was some internal change. We had a huge amount of success with BG after I, after we switched in our store, enormous success. I mean, we went from selling about 50, 60, 70 services a month in the shop to uh, over 500 within two months. Once we switched over to BG, it was incredible. And then you know, another year or two went by and there's some internal changes, a uh, new general manager and the dealer and, I really wasn't uh, happy with the direction things were going. Ended up uh, leaving the dealership without a uh, even a job lined up. I hadn't even up- gone through the process of updating my resume. I just knew I needed a mental health break. Plus, I had a one-month-old son at the time who's now uh, going on 15 months. And uh, so I took a couple months off. And then the first thing I did was uh, 
sent uh, sent an email to uh, to Mike Fox, my uh, my distributor, um, and uh, it all kind of fell together. The timing was perfect, and I was already a big BG fan at the time. And here I am. Oh, that's awesome. So, give people an idea because I this this Hyundai store you were at it was a it was a good sized store. How many like CPROs do you guys see a month? We were one of the top ten largest uh, Hyundai stores in the country for service volume. Um, we were doing approximately, um, depending on depending on the time of year, but in our busy season here in the winter time, we were doing as much as uh, three thousand or more CPROs a month, over a hundred cars a day through the shop. Sometimes as much as one hundred and fifty. Big freaking store. <laughs> Big store. I had. Um, you know, once again, depending on the year, depending on the time, I've had as many as 25 technicians in the shop, seven service advisors. Um, really, really, really big store. I Man, I love <clears throat> Hyundai dealerships. Like, it seems like we just have, especially here in Kansas, like the, the two Hyundai dealers in town here are consistently like two of the highest penetration rates in the, in the city. They just... They knock it out of the park, you know. I believe it, and actually, for there was a period of time where that store, unfortunately, due to some management changes after I left, and there's been a quite a bit of employee turnover. Um, it's, uh, the numbers there have dipped a bit. We're working on getting them back up because they're still on the program. But at one point, we were actually the top producing um, dealer for our entire distributor, and it was a Hyundai store. We were beating out. Toyota stores and Ford stores that were significantly larger than us, but our penetration was sky high. Sometimes as much as almost forty percent. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah the the dealers in Florida are mind blowing. Like I, you know, I spent so much time down there working. Well, a bunch with Fox, and then also with Bar G, and of course with the Derby during the AutoNation launch and stuff like that. And it's just it's just massive dealer after massive dealer and they're packed, you know, all over the it's state. Unbelievable. They're all huge. That's wild, man. I mean, of course, Kansas, we don't really have any that are that size, but even in Michigan, when I was there, we didn't have very many stores that would rival even an average store down there. Well, Crazy. the population here is growing too. There's an average of 5% uh, population growth per year from all the people that are moving down from Northern States to escape the cold. Yeah, I feel like I the whole time I worked down there, I barely ever met like a native Florida person, with the exception of maybe Tony. But you know, everybody else was like a transplant from New York and New Jersey. It seemed like I think he was actually born in Indiana, wasn't he? Yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. He spent most of his life in Florida, but there's not many. Yeah, I guess he's a transplant too. My my 15 month old is a Florida native. That's one I know. Yeah, well, there's still time to get her out of there. so uh you talked about uh the the drastic change in maintenance sales after you guys switched to b switched to bg and it sounds like it was extremely fast like night and day difference instantaneous what do you think uh precipitated that the belief um the belief that um, myself as well as my team had in the product and the program. Um, so prior to BG, um, the uh, the maintenance 
I wouldn't even call it a partner that we had at the time because there really was no true partnership. The vendor um, had a product that we were not we were not seeing any real results on the vehicles. And on top of that, he wasn't um, giving us much in the way of any kind of service. The kind of machines that we were provided with were old Justice Brothers machines from the 1980s and 90s that barely worked. Uh, we used to have to call them out to fix them all the time. And if we did have an issue, we were lucky if he showed up in about a week. There was one transmission machine that um, his actual answer to us was that, oh, if it shuts off in the middle of the service, just kick it with your foot and then it'll start again. And that was the answer we were supposed to be okay with. <laughs> to be fair, that's how it was originally designed. <laughs> but it's uh, it, it, nobody believed in it, you know, and – the advisors even knew if they sold a service, there was like a 50-50 chance at one point that the machine might fail in the middle of the exchange and nobody really wanted to deal with that. And uh, it got to the point where no one wanted to to actually um, sell a lot of the services because they knew there was a good chance of a problem happening. And, you know, that's not a that's not really a way to to make a program work. Well, you know, it's it's weird because. You know, BG, we pride ourselves on service, but, you know, we lose accounts too. You know, we lose accounts because of, of things that are not our fault and things that are our fault. You know, we've, I, I'm sure most of us listening have been in that situation where, you know, we were that sales rep that was doing a terrible job. You know, what, what is it that, why do you think that this guy just put nothing into your account? He took us for granted. And he had a very tight knit relationship with the parts manager and the parts manager was always, even while we brought BG in the door, he was actually fighting against us against BG behind the scenes. So there was that loyalty that he had from that guy. And he also had a very close relationship with my predecessor. So he felt secure. He thought that he had our dealership for granted and he didn't think that there was even remote chance that, somebody inside would get fired up to pull the trigger and switch to another company. Now, when you guys switched, you switched just a couple of things initially, right? Like fuel and oil products. We, we first brought in uh, fuel and oil. That's right. Um, but in my mind, that was only the first step. I was already mentally committed to making the full change. I knew that's the direction I wanted to go, but I knew because of the opposition I had internally that I'd have to take baby steps. So if I could get the fuel and oil stuff selling, I knew that I would have a case to go to the dealer principal and say, we need to do this. We need to switch. And we ended up just, we ended up creating a kit and it was just one kit. It was, um, it was a, I think it was a six part kit or five part kit. Let me see. MOA EPR 44 K. Um, and, two cans of 260. So yeah, it was it was a pretty big kit. And we were selling it for $299. It was an expensive service. And that's, you know, Hyundai uh Hyundai customers uh, are not always the highest spending ones, but despite the price point of $300, we were selling over 100 a month of those kits. We were blowing it out of the water. We were selling more of those kits than all of the other competitor uh items combined. Man. And you guys, if I remember correctly, I'm just trying to recall some of the details here. 
but you guys had like a, a pretty good spiff built into that too, right? Like the guys were compensated well for selling it oh, yeah. because it was such a labor heavy service. I actually put a $13 advisor spiff into it. I took no spiffs as a manager. You know, I didn't, I didn't want uh, my judgment to be clouded by something like that. Um, but I did put a $13 spiff in there and um, I really wanted these guys to clobber it and that helped. Absolutely. But they also believed in it because they saw the results. We would get phone calls from customers saying that their vehicle had not ran that well since it was new. So it's, it's a, it's kind of a testament to the idea of, of, you know, really thinking through every aspect of the program. Like Um, you can bring in new tools and that's great and all, but you also need the training to get buy-in, right? You need people to understand the value of what they're selling. You know, you can put a good advisor spiff on it, but if those other components aren't there, if your equipment sucks or you don't have buy-in from the advisors and techs, even that is really not going to push your program forward. It's like the combination of all of those elements working together. That's exactly it. It was a combination of everything. I remember the day where we were, where I really became a BG believer. We had a 2015 Hyundai Equus five liter uh, with a 20,000 miles driven by a 90 year old guy who, as we know, drove it like, you know, a four cylinder around town, carboned up, idling horribly. Um, And our competitors' products didn't even touch it. And we were, calling Hyundai tech line, the line to the engineers for advice. They were having us replace parts. It was still running rough. And that's when Mike and Tony came in and they, uh, they did a demo. They did, you know, they did engine and fuel and it fixed the car. And I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And at that point I was, uh, I put on my uh, BG believer hat and became a cheerleader for the brand. It's funny how like, you know, you're, you, you're really not supposed to talk about it as a fix and you can't always count on it doing something like that, but God, it's nice when it works out. Exactly. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's like once in a while. So we we're in the process of uh, trying to get one of our dealer groups in Western Kansas using the PVP program. And uh, so we went in, we had a big meeting with the, uh, the, one of the owner slash managers for, for a multiple stores, fixed ops director, you know, all the important people from, from F and I and everything were in there. We have this big discussion about protection plan, about customer retention and you know, selling value rather than talking about price, all of this stuff. Everybody's nodding and agreeing. All right, well, you know, let's, let's, you know, kind of do some thinking on this and then we'll come back to it or whatever. Like three days later, they have a protection plan claim on a transmission and we paid like two grand towards this transmission that had gone out or something. And it was like, yes, that is just the perfect timing, perfect scenario for what we're trying to do. Sometimes it just falls in place at the right time. Yeah. The virus isn't helping, but no, we'll, we'll, it'll go away. <laughs> we'll get through this. We'll get through this. So being that you've been on both sides of that scenario, right, as an advisor for many years and as a manager for many years in uh, in big stores with a lot of variables, I had a question for you about advisor pay plans. Mm-hmm. Um, because it seems to me that sometimes, you know, I've had accounts that just 
struggled and I really couldn't get them off the ground. And then revamping the advisor pay plan, it changed the entire game for them. That being said, you know, I, I don't have a lot of in dealership experience and I know a lot of guys listen that don't. I don't feel like I know a lot about how advisor pay structures work. Um, when you were in the dealers as a manager and as advisor, like what, what worked for you? What didn't? What did you, what did you try to steer the store towards? Uh, what, what's been your experience in pay structure? My personal experience with the pay structure, I've been, I've been through multiple different pay plans, both as a manager and an advisor. The pay plans that work best for everybody are the ones that are going to be customer pay focused. Um, you can structure it in different ways. Some, um, some shops will structure it to where the advisor gets paid off the hours build. Some will do it off the total dollars. Some will do it off the gross profit. And there's different arguments for each one. But the one that I have personally seen the most success with uh, is ones that are actually focused on the total dollars sold. Now, this, a lot of the general managers out there want a pay plan that's focused on gross. So they think that the advisor will try to sell higher grossing items. That's all fine and dandy. But the problem is, is that sometimes will steer the advisor away from a lower grossing item, like a filter or a tire rotation. You want all of it. You don't want to, you don't want to steer an advisor away from any customer pay item. You want them to sell the high grossing uh, items, the, the, the repairs and and, and things like that, but you also want them to sell, you know, filters, wipers, things that maybe don't bring as high of a gross, but it all adds up at the end of the day. So the one, when we switch to a pay plan that we, we bump the advisor uh, customer pay percentage up significantly, um, and we lower just a little bit the warranty and internal pay structure, we ended up having record month after record month after record month. And it was it was incredible, and it was because the advisors saw the opportunity to make more money than ever, and they did. They all made more money than they had ever made, but the store made more money too, including myself. And it was because we we focused on dollars, customer pay dollars, and uh, they they just wanted everything they could get. They didn't turn away any customer pay items or steer clear of it, or you know, they they just wanted every piece that they could possibly get, and it just was a home run. Now, I know that I've had stores, especially ones that struggle with like CSI percentage, you know, uh, have shifted a large focus of their pay plan towards, uh, you know, survey scores or, or CSI percentage. Was there pressure at your stores to do that sort of a thing? We did do it. It was a part of the pay plan. Um, the advisor, for example, in our store, one CSI plan that we ran with for a long time. If the advisor made their CSI level, they actually got an additional $350 um, in their check. Uh, but if they didn't make it, they lost $350. So it was actually a $700 swing, which is quite a bit of pay. But the good news is, is that we had good CSI. So it was very, very rare for anybody to miss their CSI on a month. It pretty much was almost a gimme. Man, okay. So it, it was a piece of the pay structure, but it wasn't the focal point. It was kind of like a, a bonus aspect to it. Yes, it wasn't the focal point, but it was a piece, and everybody wanted that piece. Now, I know that, that at times, you know, when, 
when everything's working well and, and advisors are making more money and stuff, sometimes uh, one of the bead counters upstairs has a tendency to interfere. I mean, did you struggle with that? Did anybody try to stick their fingers into your into your pay plan? Actually, yes. So we had a pay plan that had been working well for us, and we were rolling with that for a few years. And we hadn't taken a step back. Uh, but the bean counters are seeing that the advisors are making more and more and more money. And um, we had a new general manager um, who really was the ultimate bean counter. And he decided to, uh, to interfere with that. And he restructured the advisor pay plan against my wishes. And unfortunately, the results are what they what I knew they'd be. And uh, everybody went backwards. We ended up uh, having a, a period of months where we were struggling to to even keep up with our previous years uh, of growth. And I knew it was because of pay. I knew what happened was is he decided to dangle that carrot out of, out of reach. And most advisors are pretty smart. They know when that carrot that's dangling is in reach or out of reach. And they knew it was out of reach. So they stopped bothering to try to get it. So they had to work harder and, and achieve a level that they had never achieved before just to make the same money that they were making. It's not very encouraging. It was discouraging and they, they, they struggled to stay motivated. And I knew that would happen. And that's exactly what happened. The, the bean counters, uh, out of, unfortunately, out of greed, um, cost themselves money. Hmm. Do you think uh, what what was it that you think precipitated that change? I mean, do you think there's like I always wonder like why all of a sudden are we so concerned with the advisor's total pay? I mean, is there somebody that are they getting this from a twenty group or some sort of industry publication saying, hey, your advisors should make this range of income, and if they're making more, you you know you're you're losing money, you're paying up too much. That's exactly where they get it from. They get it from 20 groups. They get it from, um, you know, all the all the different uh, networks that dealer principals and general managers connect with around the around the country and in the industry. And there is a quote unquote common belief that advisors should make within a certain range. Sales salesmen, sales managers should make within a certain range. Every employee has their price range. And when they start to perform to a level that is increasing the money that they're making, well, that's when you make adjustments to bring them back down into the quote unquote acceptable range, even though the store is making more money than ever before. So you keep their, you keep their pay within a certain range. It allows the store to become more and more profitable. And that's how the theory goes. But that doesn't always translate into that because when you're reaching a certain level of profitability, a lot of it has to do with the way it is structured. So when you, when you, when you cut pay, and they'll never tell you it's a pay cut, but in reality it is, and everybody knows that it is. They stop trying to reach for that level, and then store profitability usually takes a little bit of a hit too. Right. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I th I think that's a pr very common practice in dealerships is to, you know, to put out a bonus structure that's unattainable. And it's really a, it's actually a pay cut, but it's disguised as a, uh, a carrot, you know? Um, I remember one of my dealers that was one of my better accounts. I had this service advisor there that he was, he was good. And he was, you know, a handful of the advisors that are really good in your territory, like 
it just seems like a hand a, a, a decent percentage of those guys are are dramatic or kind of annoying you know and this guy was one of those but that he would great. sell routinely like you know 40 40 or 50 services every two weeks i mean i wrote him almost the same spiff check every two weeks and uh you know i got to talking with him about it one day and he's like hey look you know he said i've been here a long time and i know that when i hit over a certain income level they cut my pay they've done it like three times now he's like so i'm just i'm just not going to do it anymore you know i know what i can make and get away with and that's all i'm going to do and that's what happens and see so if the the dealer thinks that that the performance that the advisors and their team are giving them is going to stay the same despite the pay cut and that doesn't really always work out that way because when you give someone a pay cut their motivation usually takes a hit. And when their motivation takes a hit, their performance will take a hit. Right. Now, did you have a pretty static team the whole time you were there? Or did you, did you have to rifle through some people to find your, uh, your guys? We had a static team. We didn't have hardly any turnover for the most part. The team of advisors that I had when I started as a manager was the team that I finished off with. Uh, we had one or two, um, additions that I added in in my first year, but they were still there when I left. Now, that store now is almost entirely different people um, than when I left a year ago, both in the shop and the advisor side. It's unrecognizable. There's very few people there that 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 I worked with. But during my tenure there, we were, it was the same team. Customers could come in, you know, year after year and see the same set of faces. And I think that really helped too. So, man, so that, that change has, that change the general manager and his policies have really altered the way that that store looks now, huh? It's an entirely different store. I mean, I know their, their BG sales aren't what they were. How are their other metrics by comparison? They've all taken a hit. Um, their profitability for the, um, for the, for fixed stops is down. Um, they've been struggling, um, we were actually winning the quarterly banner um, multiple times a year for the district for Hyundai. So we, our, our, our service department wall was literally covered in all these CSI banners because we were, we were like the top dogs for the Southeast region for, for CSI as well. And it's kind of funny how that tends to go hand in hand when, when your advisors are selling and performing and the gross profit is up. So is customer retention and satisfaction, generally happier customers buy more. Uh, so it all goes hand in hand and we were breaking records, winning banners and funny, one of the people that I actually know that still works there said that the Hyundai rep came in a couple months ago and asked them to take down all the old banners because that doesn't represent the state of the store anymore. Wow. <laughs> He's scoring some points with them right now. <laughs> well, <clears throat> it's crazy. The truth. Man, so um, so technician wise, did you was that team pretty static, or did you did you have to add and remove a few? We had a few changes, but it was pretty static for the most part. We had a core group of guys at a generally about I would say we ran with around twenty techs was our average, and about fifteen of those were the same guys year after year. We had uh, we had a little bit of turnover on the Lubrac. Um, just because there always isn't, there isn't always room for those guys to move up. You know, you only have so many 
flat rate positions available. And sometimes they go on to find a flat rate job elsewhere when you don't have it for them. And, you know, we had a couple couple turnover uh, spots with, within the flat rate techs, but for the most part, the, the core group was static. And a lot of the actual, towards the end, a lot of the guys are reaching uh, master certification levels were ones that we started training right off the Lubrac. We would send them to school. And when we saw a bright, when we saw bright potential in somebody, we just trained them up. You know, I, I would send, I would send some of these guys to school multiple, multiple times a year and just get their certifications rocking. And then some of these guys turn into uh, to superstars in the shop. Wow. That's awesome. That does seem to be like the model right now is like, uh, if you're just looking outward for, for amazing technicians, like you're going to really struggle. You've got to grow your own. Most of our shop towards uh, the end was homegrown talent. Oh, that's awesome. So speaking of technicians, um, I know that pay structure for technicians and hourly rates and things like that vary uh, across the country. But, you know, what, what was the, what, what kind of challenges did you run into when it came to tech's compensation? I mean, did you, did you have a lot of guys that were constantly angling for a higher hourly rate or did you have some sort of a program that allowed them to make more money or? Well, their, their pay, their pay was structured pretty simply. Um, they were flat rate and whatever they flagged, they flagged. Uh, but that said, I had a, I had a little bit of a different approach to it than a lot of other managers that I've seen out there. I've seen a couple that have similar approach that I did. But one thing I knew was that I wanted the techs to be happy and not worried about their pay. And I knew they would do a better job of fixing a problem car, a warranty car, things like that, if they weren't worried about losing their butts on a, on a, on a difficult job. So what I would do, what I would do for them one, when it came to their actual rate, the good techs, the ones that I really wanted to keep, I intentionally overpaid them a little bit because I, I kind of wanted to I wanted to make it so they were secure with me and they weren't going to go looking. And if they went out looking somewhere, that people weren't going to be able to match what I was paying. So we did have a little bit of a, a higher pay scale in the shop than most other dealers. And we were one of the higher, if not the highest in town. But then again, I never had anybody looking. They weren't looking to go somewhere else because they knew they weren't going to get more anywhere else, the good ones. Another thing was, too, is that I I wasn't afraid to throw unapplied labor at these guys. In other words, if they were legitimately hard working on a, a problem car, and then let's say that car only ended up the warranty job paid two hours, but they had a full day into it. Um, I had an account that I would just bill their labor to. I'd make sure they got paid for what they had in it so they wouldn't die on that car as long as they're putting in a legitimate effort and um that got them focused on actually fixing the car and um and instead of complaining and moaning to everybody about how they're they're not getting paid to do this and this this oh this sucks and you know whatever and uh you know instead their head wasn't they, they kept their head in the game they fixed the cars we our fix it right the first time score with hyundai was the highest in the region and I believe a lot of that had to do with the fact that that's what they're focused on. They, they became focused on the car rather than their pay. And yes, right. I did run a little bit of a higher unapplied labor average than most other stores. It wasn't sky high, but I felt it was money well spent. 
Yeah. And I mean, it's sometimes it's hard to put a dollar amount on, on things like, you know, having a steady pack of technicians in the shop. I mean, you know, there's a lot of shops out here now that are struggling to find, you know, a, a certified master tech or whoever, you know, whatever it is that they're looking for. And, you know, what is it worth to them to have one of those guys on board? I guarantee it's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find them. So when you have, when you have them, you want to, you want to keep them, retain them and keep them happy because there's not a, there's not a, a conga line of master techs or even B or C level techs looking to beat down the door to go into a dealership at any given time. So when you have somebody that brings value to the table, it's important to, to, to do everything you can to retain them, especially in the market today, because there used to be a day when you could post an ad for a help wanted for a tech and you'd have 10 qualified applicants within a day. You're lucky to find one. Oh, I don't doubt it. Yeah. You know, when I, so I started in 2009 full time as a sales rep and, uh, you know, it was right in the middle of the recession. And, you know, one of the first, first couple of weeks that I was on, on, you know, in my territory, we shut down all the Pontiac stores and, you know, it was just a really turbulent time. And I remember I didn't really realize what was happening at the time, but, you know, these dealers were purging anyone on staff that made more than, you know, a certain amount per hour. You know, the guys that were making $32, $34 an hour, you know, and probably not even that much, $28 or $30 an hour, they were finding reasons to push these guys out of the shop, you know. And by the time I left my territory, they, you know, everybody was desperate for techs. They were paying $36, $38 an hour, signing bonus, paid vacation time just to try to get somebody back that had that level of competency. And a lot of those guys left the industry at the time, you know, they, they were so fed up with, you know, the, the, the way that things were run and the way that they were treated and stuff. A lot of them just, they said, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to find a job outside the industry. And that, that, that's a huge mistake to push that kind of skill level out of the shop. It's, it's, it's very, it's, you know, it's cutting your, cutting off your nose to spite your face. You're not you're not actually accomplishing anything in the long run. It's very short sighted because you're going to pay for that. And you know, good employees have you know they're they're you got to pay. You got to pay for talent. There's and some some people some people some of the bean counter types have a hard time understanding that. But at the end of the day, if you 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 pay for you pay for what you get. So if you if you pay for the the top uh, the top talent, you're going to get the top talent in most cases, and you're going to do better. And there is the the idea is that you can pay dirt cheap for high quality. It doesn't really work that way. Right. So you mentioned uh, your your quick loop guys, uh, and by the sounds of it, you guys were doing a ton of oil changes on Tons. a daily basis. Now, I know that that's a real pain point for a lot of shops is is figuring out how to effectively get their their oil change services in and out of the store in a in a timely fashion. 
Uh, I know that there's there's a lot of shops that struggle to do it in an hour, much less you know for thirty or forty minutes like they're supposed to. What was what was the system that you guys used? And I mean, I'm sure you tried several different things. Like what what worked and what didn't in your experience on that level? Well, we uh, we did struggle with that, and there was never a point where I would say we ever got it to where we wanted it to be. Um, with our clientele, we always had a challenge that everybody wanted to wait. 80% of our, our ROs, our, our tickets on any given day were waiting customers. We would offer shuttle rides, loaner cars, rental cars, you name it, to get these people out of there. And it was so hard. Our waiting lounge would be full every day. And so we, we tried uh, each lube tech having their own rack. We've tried um, different dispatch systems. We tried having them tag team cars to get them done faster. Um, actually what we found that worked the best was each one having their own rack and working on their own car. Uh, even though theoretically it actually sounds like two guys per car would get it done faster It actually bogged things down because there, there was communication gaps and one hand didn't know what the other one was doing. And we ended up having more mistakes made. So one, uh, just having a dedicated area of the shop to uh, nothing but oil changes and tire rotations and quick maintenance with each each uh, lube tech having their own rack and um, just prioritizing those uh, tickets over any other work really ended up being the the best that, that we could come up with and pace and spacing out the oil change appointments. But even still, we would run into times where it was over an hour for an oil change. Sometimes I've seen it as high as two hours or, you know, it, it was it was a challenge. We never would promise under an hour. We just we could never meet that. We could never consistently meet that expectation. So it, the, just based off of the sheer volume, there's only so much you can do. So the hour was kind of the standard really in the Hyundai world for a long time. Was there a particular point in the process that tended to be the 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 uh, part of it that bogged it down? You know, was it the inspection? Was it the 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 actual oil change itself or the tire rotation like getting it off the drive. I mean, what was the, the tough part? The, 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 the two toughest parts. One was the, um, I, would, I wouldn't say the inspection itself, but waiting on the advisor to uh, present additional recommendations. You know, if the, if the, uh, the tech did the inspection, found that there was a clogged up air filter or something like that. The problem is, is that we'd have these busy rushes, especially like around the 10 o'clock hour. Um, there's another one around two and then the advisor would get bogged down. So they would have multiple tickets in the shop all waiting for additional recommendations and the advisor can only do so much as, at once. So the car would be sitting back there in the shop waiting on recommendations and that could be 20 minutes of a slowdown right there just while the tech is waiting for the answer from the advisor to know if he's going to button it up or, or move it on to a, a flat rate tech to do additional items. Yeah. So, okay. So that's my second question. So if they upsold work off of that car, um, did you guys move it out of the quick lube and into a different bay? Depends on what it was. I mean, if it was just wiper blades and an air filter, no. Uh, But if it was brakes, um, you know, any kind of uh, additional fluid exchanges or things like that, then yes, then we, or or repairs. Yes. And then we would actually um, dispatch it to the next available flat rate tech. So you didn't want your guys on the quick loop doing BG services then? Uh, it's not that we didn't want them doing it, but 
it would bog things down. So um, we needed them to be able to get to the next car. Um, we would have them do it occasionally if there was no one else available to do it and they had the time. But for the most part, we would try to pass that stuff off to um, the line techs and it would keep the, the quick, uh, the, the car care express team. That's what they called it with Hyundai. We, that would keep them flowing faster. And it would also make the, the flat rate techs happy to get some, what they call gravy work. Right. So, so Hyundai had specific goals for you guys in terms of like service time and stuff on those cars. Yeah. They wanted it an hour or less. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, that is tough to do in that environment. How many, how many oil changes do you guys say that you were doing a day? Sometimes as much as 70 or 80. Wow. You know, when, uh, in my territory in Michigan, um, I had a, I had quite a few shops that sold a lot off of those quick service cars, but you know, the, the, the best system as far as like, you know, how it functioned and how, you know, how much we sold off of it and stuff that, that I had in my territory was, uh, if some of you guys know Jim Palshan, you know, he was, uh, yeah, he was a service manager at a, at a, uh, Buick GMC store in Saginaw and he had, he, man, he just had a, a real knack for ha- for hiring guys on the quick lube, you know, and there was some, there was some that didn't make it and stuff, but overall, like he really found good young guys for the quick lube. And he did a couple of things for one. Um, he had daily incentives for the quick lube. If they, if stuff was upsold off of those cars. So like, uh, one of the common ones he did was, you know, he would tell the guys, Hey, look, First one to upsell five services off quick loop cars gets 25 bucks cash, you know, to the, to the techs that were working on them. And so these guys, man, they were the most consistent when it came to like dabble lube, they pulled diff fluid samples. I mean, they tested the brake fluid. They did everything. They really did a good job of that. And it was funny, like a lot of, you know, cause he had one to two quick service advisors at any given time. And a lot of those guys that ended up at that desk came from the shop. You know, they were, they were young guys that started out as quick loop techs and they just, you know, rather than wait on the advisor to go talk to the customer. I mean, he had a a few of them that they would just walk right up there and sell it themselves. And so eventually he moved them up to the front desk, you know, it was just, it was a cool system. We actually had uh, different incentives for the uh, quick loop techs as well. And um, different spiffs. And I really pushed that program hard with them, too, when we switched over to BG. And because, uh, you know, I, I really stuck my neck out at the dealership to get BG in the door. So it was a very, a, a very important goal for me to get that program working. <laughs> right. And um, so I did. I put uh, incentives on the on the on the upsells. Um, we tweaked it. We, we did per item. And then I would have different contests, you know, the first guy to to sell, you know, uh, upsell five inductions that day or, you know, things like that. And it worked a lot. And the, um, we, we got really, really good at, um, at upselling, uh, off the, uh, off the lube rack. And these guys were, they were bringing up, I mean, they were trying to find everything they could possibly find to upsell and not just BG items. I, I did want to make that clear that I wanted them to still sell brakes and filters and tires and anything else they could get. But it, um, we ended we ended up uh, getting a pretty good uh, maintenance penetration rate off of that lube rack, and 
you know, even on, we had a prepaid maintenance program that the F&I department at the dealership sold a lot of. And a lot of these customers were already come in with a lot of their things like alignments, oil changes and tire rotations already in, you know, quote unquote free, but they really just, you know, they paid for it through their uh, finance, financing of their car. Mm-hmm. And the initial advisor perception is, oh, these customers aren't going to spend anything. They think they don't have to pay for anything. And we ended up selling a ton to those people. And I, and I used to tell my guys, my advisors, don't be afraid. Just do it. You know, what's the worst they can say is no, go on to the next one. You know, it, if you, you know, if you, if you, um, if you recommend every single time, I promise some will say yes, but no one will say yes if you never tell them about it. So we ended up um, right. really doing well and it didn't hurt our CSI. And actually what we found is as our maintenance penetration went up, so did our CSI. It is funny how that works. You know, it's that like when the typically, and there's a few exceptions, but typically the more a shop is selling, the better interactions they have with their customers. And I don't know if that's because I, I, I'm sure a big part of it just comes down to they're spending more time with those people. More time and there's more trust built. Customers will spend money with, with, a, with an advisor or a dealership that they trust. And that that's just reality that when there's a relationship built there and a lot of these customers are coming to see the same faces and, you know, and the way they were treated, it, it's, it, it all goes hand in hand. So if the customers are spending money with you, you know, obviously there's a certain uh, level of trust that they have with the store. So that it kind of, that's why I think I, that's my belief that it goes hand in hand. A, a happier customer spends more money. Agreed. The other, the other side of that too, is that when, when things are flowing and people are selling and you've got buy-in and stuff like that, like the store is just a happier place altogether. You know, there's like a team atmosphere. It's just, it's fun to be in those types of shops. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I had, I had a couple of advisors that were routinely getting over a thousand dollars in spiff checks a month on the BG program. And these guys got into a friendly competition with each other to see who could get the most spiff money each month, but it was positive. It was fun. And we had similar things going on in the shop and everybody, it was, it was a really good morale atmosphere. And, and as that's going on, we're still winning CSI banners from Hyundai. It was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty good thing we had going on there for quite some time. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. Now, your quick loop techs. How did you compensate those guys? Were they hourly? Well, they they actually were flat rate for a while. Uh, they were, and um, there were some labor law changes in the state of Florida. So, um, with. And, and essentially, we could have kept them flat rate, but it would have been a little bit hairier for accounting because they would have had to meet a certain minimum. Um, so we ended up moving them to hourly plus um, spiffs for upsells. Gotcha. So what did you think, in your opinion, was the better way to go? Flat rate. Because they were more um, motivated to be fast so they can get so they can get rack up those hours and get the jobs going when they went to hourly uh, and it became a little uh, a little harder to uh to keep motivated you know you'd see them playing on their phones more doing things like that and because uh, they're getting paid no matter what so what's their incentive to uh to get to the next job right 
Now, do you think that that same principle would apply to a smaller store that wasn't seeing the kind of volume that you guys were seeing? Um, depends. The volume has to be there for the flat rate to work for the Lutex. So if the volume isn't there, you're going to have to pay them hourly because otherwise they're just going to starve and then they're not going to be happy. So you do need the volume for the flat rate to work. Gotcha. Uh, so kind of shifting gears towards your advisors, um, you know, obviously they were very effective when it came to selling. What was their method of selling? Were they using menus? Did they have some sort of point of sale that they were working off of? Or was it just all a la carte uh, off the inspection sort of stuff? It actually started out a la carte off the inspection. And then I ended up, um, the store had been a la carte since essentially the day it opened. There was never a 15K, a 30K. Um, the, my predecessor in the dealership, uh, the manager before me, uh, was a big believer in a la carte. He didn't believe in menu selling. Um, so it was mostly inspection-based, occasionally upfront, but really uh, inspection-based off the tech recommendations. So I started a gradual shift away from that. You know, we were doing well on the a la carte when we first started. There's no doubt. We were selling a ton of services. But I started. I put together a 5K service, and I, I made I made the uh, – at one point made the MOA an auto pour on the, uh, on the 5k, uh, getting a little bit of extra gross and everything we did. Um, and then we had a 15k, 30k, and we started selling a lot of those, a lot of those packages. There was still a, a portion that was always, um, recommendate rec, uh, recommendations from the shop, you know, based off a of condition, you're always going to have that no matter what, you know, the, the, when the tech does an inspection, if he sees a, the transmission fluid's black. You know, you got to get that dab loop, bring it to the advisor to bring it to the customer. Um, but we really did start getting more towards menu selling. And not too long before I left, we actually did get on the, the smart VMA program. But um, things really were so rapidly changing at the dealership that uh, really never got a chance to see that one through. I see. Okay. So it's, it was just a, an evolving process pretty much the entire time. Involving and constantly improving and un, until, you know, changes were made um, above my pay grade that kind of ended that. So you've been with BG almost the year now. Uh, what's been some of the, <laughs> did, were there some, uh, you know, things that caught you off guard about being on this side of the fence? Um, yeah, you know, I guess I was actually surprised, um, at first going into a lot of these, um, a lot of these different dealers, especially, um, that not every service manager, um, has a priority on the, on the maintenance program the way that I did. And I, that was a little bit of a wake up call that, Hey, you know, you, not all these, not all these, some of these guys are, are, are always hair on fire, just trying to make it through the day. So, you know, to, to try to, uh, to get them to understand the importance of the program and what it really does for their bottom line and their, and their pockets and their, their teams as well. That's been something that I've had to, uh, to spend some time with these guys on because I thought it was just a given that being in that seat that you knew that it was important, but that's not always the case. Now, 
I I was talking to uh, Sean White from Buffalo BG about this because you know he was service manager for a while as well. Mm-hmm. Has that? Do you think that 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 legitimizes you to the customers that you talk about, or do you find that uh, it it's polarizing for you to go in and talk about your experience with those guys? Oh no, it definitely legitimizes. Um, there's a there's a level of trust and confidence that you that you get with uh, most of these managers when they know that you've been in their seat. Um, actually, one of my best one of my best Ford stores. Actually, I would say my best Ford store. Uh, recently redid the advisor pay plan and the service manager called me up asking for help. One of my advice. And we sat down and crafted the advisor pay plan together. And I know that I wouldn't have had that phone call and that kind of rapport and trust building with him had I not been in his seat. So he, he takes my advice a lot more seriously than I think he would just some other BG guy. And I, it's not, that's just one example of many, um, Virtually all the dealerships that I go to, I have a uh, a certain level of trust that that they have in me, and it's because that I've been on that side of it, and um, they know I'm also going to uh, to shoot them straight about stuff, um, no matter what, and even if it's not BG related, they know they can come to me for it, and I'm more than happy to help. What about with the independence? Uh, is there a degree of reverence for you because you were you ran a big dealership? You know, there is there 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 definitely is, um, but I wouldn't say it's as significant as the dealership side. There is a certain reverence, yeah, but um, you know, the independents um, don't put quite as much importance on that. Um, it's a little bit of a different kind of relationship that you build with the independents, but there's definitely. You know, it's still advantageous, no doubt. I would just say it helps me more of the dealers. So given your background and your experience and and all the hands-on stuff that you've done at dealers over the years, like what is your advisor training center around? Like what's what's your focus right now when it comes to training your people? Well, a couple different things. One I focus on quite a bit is I want them to understand, especially with waiting customers, a concept I try to get into their pound into their minds is something called quarter time. It's the idea that every 15 minutes, the quarter of the hour that passes, statistically, a waiting customer is 50% less likely to purchase an additional recommendation, whether it's BG or non-BG. So for every 15 minutes that passes that that customer is waiting in that lounge, your odds of selling just went down 50% and then another 50, then another 50 to the point where you're just going to tick them off. So getting to that customer, getting the recommend once you, the very moment you have an opportunity to get those recommendations to the customer, you need to prioritize it because your odds of selling go way down. So speeding up that process is something that I focus on with them. Also not being afraid of no's. Don't get caught up in the S's and no's. Um, just recommend consistently 100% of the time and the yeses will come. So don't worry about whether that customer is going to say yes or no. Don't fear the rejection because it's like baseball. You go up to the plate every 10 times, you fail seven, you bat 300, you're considered an all-star. And it's a similar concept when it comes to being an advisor. Just do your job, advise them, let them make the decision. Don't worry if they say yes or no, but if you consistently recommend what's ethically needed on the car, the numbers will follow. And that's, that's really where I, I try to focus on with them. 
Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, we talked about talked about a little bit with Sean yesterday, but um, it, it seems to me lately that relieving some of the anxiety around, you know, the sales scenario is a big part of getting advisors to do it consistently, you know, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with what you're saying. Like, you know, you can't worry about if they're going to buy or not. You just have to go up there and do it consistently. You know, we can hone the process after it's being, you know, after it's being done consistent, but until we have that consistency, you know, there's, there's not much that we can do in the way of, of sharpening their technique, you know? Exactly. And I, I, you know, I go over word tracks and things like that with them to help with their confidence and their results. But ultimately I tell them, I'd rather have them going up to the customer and advising them using maybe not the best word track than not doing it at all, because you're still going to have better results. Even if you're not as fluid with your words as you want to be, you're still going to have better results trying than if you don't. So what's, what's been, uh, <clears throat> what do you, what do you think's been like the most challenging aspect of, of switching over to BG here in the past year? I would say, um, most challenging aspect is, you know, has really been, uh, the, the, the patience of get, getting into new dealers. Um, it takes time. Um, you know, just because I was anxious and in a rush to switch over to BG when the opportunity arose doesn't mean that everybody else is and everybody moves at their own pace and, you know, having to respect that and be patient and consistent on my end. Um, and, 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 and just not get discouraged when there's, you know, when there's internal opposition and, uh, just really just, um, the consistency of being relentless and, um, and understanding that, you know, some, some dealers are a very slow moving process and I've come to realize that and understand it. And that's okay. You know, as long as, as long as I'm consistent on my end and I keep on showing up and keep trying, you know, the, uh, the cards fall into place, which they have been, but I, I, I do, uh, I do, uh, have to find that, that, you know, some, uh, some, some stores just don't have the same priority on stuff, uh, that you want them to, you can get them there and help show them the light, but it's a process. And, and, uh, and that's something that's been a little bit of a challenge at times. Yeah, I, th- I think it just, it's exactly the same as we were just talking about with advisors, you know, uh, consistency is in a lot of ways, a lot more important than, you know, ha- having a good technique, you know, especially when it comes to cold calls, like, you know, you can be really slick and have a perfect pitch and, and just really know how to hook someone's interest and stuff. But, you know, two visits over the course of a year is still probably not going to net you many new accounts. It's no, it's more about just being there on a consistent basis. And one day you, you catch them on the right day. You know, they just came out of a meeting where they were, you know, somebody was yelling at them about, you know, getting their gross profit percentage up or their, you know, their hours per RO or their CSIs in the toilet, whatever it is, you know, you, you happen to be there, you know, right after one of those meetings and all of a sudden, you know, their ears are open. It's about being consistent on our end too. And if we're going to go into these stores and, you know, preach consistency with the advisors, we have to be consistent in what we do as well. And, you know, it, 
when you when you go into a, a cold call and get your teeth kicked in, it's it's very easy to say, ah, screw that, I'm not going back there. But the challenge is, you know, going back and you just got to do it, just suck it up and do it. And, and I'm not going to sit there and say that cold calls are always fun. They're not, but that's okay. You know, I you make you make you, you make a um, you know fun out of them, and then and sometimes they actually end up being uh, being quite a quite enjoyable at the end. So you just you can't be afraid of it. You can't be afraid of the rejection. If we're telling the advisors not to be afraid of rejection, then we can't be afraid of it either. Absolutely. So uh, to kind of tie everything, you know, sum up all the stuff that we've talked about here, you know, what's been your biggest win since starting with BG? Like what's your accomplishment that you're most proud of at this point? Um, I mean, there's, there's a, there's definitely a, a few of them. Um, you know, of course, landing a new dealership is is always accomplishing, and there's been a few of that. But I would actually say that what I'm most what I'm most um, proud of is actually some of the results that I've actually gotten from um, from my f- existing uh, Ford store. Um, there's a Ford store here in my in my area that um, have been on the program for quite some time. But, you know, I saw the potential in them, but they really were not anywhere close to firing all, on all cylinders. And what it, there appeared to be some resistance from the the service manager there. And, and I ended up just going through the process, doing the training, starting with demonstrations. Um, a lot of these guys had not really seen much in the way of product demos, had not received advisor training. So I just pounded the, the 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 training from all aspects from de- from product demos to advisor training to rim uh sat sitting down with the manager having you know business meetings uh figuring out how we can get things to the next level and once once the service manager actually saw that i was what he believed to be the real deal that i wasn't pulling his chain that i was following through with what i said he decided to start following through on his, his end too he started holding his people accountable and all of a sudden, the store started firing on all cylinders. And it's nowhere near the largest Ford store we have. But now, for the past four or five months, on most months, they're actually our number one store for our distributor. They have gone night and day. Their weekly orders now are larger than they used to buy from us in a month. So that's been a wow. That's been one that I've been. Um, pretty proud of because uh, and the service manager now is taking a lot of pride in the fact that uh, he's now a top performing BG store and he he now is excited because he's seen what they've accomplished he's seen what's done the bottom line and his mission now day in day out is he wants to be the number one uh, BG store for our region (laughs) that's great man well, I uh, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this morning, Ryan. Uh, sure, I'm glad to have you on board, and I I, I really appreciate uh, you sharing some of your experiences uh, from when you were working at the dealership. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks a lot, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you later. All right, take care. <laughs>